You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bolchevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, where currently it's blue sky and sunshine outside, and a half hour ago, it was thunder and lightning and so dark, I had to turn the lights on to see my keyboard. Uh, that's That's what... Fall and spring are like in the Pacific Northwest. Five minutes and the weather will completely change. So, you know, and, and speaking of weather, you just got to, uh, you know, put your thoughts and prayers and whatever else out to the folks of, of uh, wine country there in California. Talk about just a, a, a fast moving uh, disaster going there with those those wildfires that are wind driven. Uh, just it's really uh, a sad thing to see, you know, people's whole lives go up in smoke, not even time to take your favorite pictures or even your computer hard drive with you. I mean, they literally, people were running down the street in front of the flames on, on that, in that case. And, uh, you know, it, it's going to take a long time to recover from that. And it just seems like, you know, Mother Nature's gone crazy this year. I don't know what. We're having, you know, the massive flooding we got in Houston and the problems we had there. The, the hurricanes in Florida and Puerto Rico and, and all the issues there. And now we've got these wind-driven firestorms, literally, uh, in California that are moving so fast that, you know, people are, are running and, and at times they're actually abandoning their vehicles because they couldn't drive out of it. They, they were better off running off the road. Um, it just, it's um, really an incredible last month or so as far as uh, Mother Nature demonstrating that, you know what, I don't care how, you know, confident you are, man, uh, and secure in, in being the uh, top of the food chain, uh, I'm still at the top. <laughs> yeah, I will take you down a peg when you think you've gotten too, too, too big. Um, sure, it sure is kind of humbling watching what can happen with just, you know, what is a, a fairly natural occurrence? Because uh, you know those dry uh, seasons in California are a natural thing, and, and the high winds in some of those areas of California are a natural thing. Just it's the getting the mixture of high winds and some flames in the dry season, and that's what we have right now down in Northern California. But uh, today's a free for all day on the Bose Nose Show, and if you want to get in on the conversation, talk about what you want to talk about versus what Jay wants to talk about, you can call us at 646-721-9887, and just press one, and that lets us know you want to get in on the conversation here on the Bose Nose Show. 
And uh, we're coming to you now live on Facebook. So uh, you can also message us through Facebook uh, and, and we'll try and get to those, those messages. And you can also email us at talk at krbnradio.net. Uh, and that you can do that between shows too, if you have any questions or, or a subject you want me to cover or a guest you'd like me to get on. And, and speaking of guests, last week we had Sheriff Byron Trapp on and you can always listen to last week's show because they get stored forever on the internet. And, uh, you know, that's something that you're able to do with the Bose Nose Show and internet radio is you don't have to listen to me live. You can listen to me at two in the morning on a Saturday, if that's what you want to do. Um, and, uh, just find the Bose Nose Show and, uh, on blog talk radio there, and you can click on any of the past episodes and give it a listen. But if you listen to last week's, um, October uh, 4th show, that is the uh, interview I had with Sheriff Byron Trapp. We talked a little bit about Las Vegas and the shooting there and talked a little bit about emergency preparedness and a few other things. We also talked about the new uh, hands-free law and what breaks the law, what doesn't break the law, and just generally how you can avoid um, you know, breaking that law. It was an interesting conversation with the, with the sheriff. So always available there on, on the internet to go back and listen to previous shows. And again, today is a free-for-all day, so give us a call. Again, the number is 646-721-9887. Just press 1. Uh, that kind of puts a little question mark up on our board so we know you're not just calling in to listen to the show because that's one of the ways you can get the Bose Nose Show uh, while we're live, you can dial in and listen to the show on your on your phone so that, you know, if you're not where you can get an Internet signal and maybe you're trying to keep, um, you know, good with the, the hands free law before you take your car out of park and get out of your parking space, you can dial into the show, put your phone on speaker and set it, you know, turn it up so you can hear it. Uh, if you've got a Bluetooth connection to your stereo or something, you can play it through there. And uh, then set it aside, not touching it, and you can go drive and listen to the Bose Nose Show while you're on the road, and, and we'll, we'll keep you good with the hands-free law. So a couple things are on my mind today because I, I spent some time in Salem over the last week. I was up there last Thursday, and I was appointed uh, as the Association of Oregon Counties representative to the Justice Reinvestment Grant Program Review Committee. That's a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> Justice Reinvestment Grant Program Review Committee, which basically says every county uh, submits for funding from this uh, program that the state runs called the Justice Reinvestment Program. And the Justice Reinvestment Act that was passed as House Bill 3194 back in 2013 was done to try and take the savings of not building another prison in Oregon and you know take those savings over 10 years and dole it out to the counties to run programs that would limit prison usage, to divert people from going to prison or to take people out of prison early or to at least have people that are coming out of prison go through programs so they don't reoffend and end up back in prison all these things it was supposed to fund or to, to lower the usage of prison time by uh, county uh, justice systems because 
every county has its own little justice system. We all have a uh, district court system that handles felony charges. We all have a jail, uh, which is run by the counties. Our county, the the, the DAs that, that charge people with, with felonies and, and try them in court are, are county employees. So that's why it's done county by county, because each county has its own little criminal justice system that it runs that eventually feeds into the state prison system. And the Justice Reinvestment Grant Program is intended to uh, help fund these programs that prevent us from building a new prison, which is estimated to cost about $600 million if they had to build the prisons that were scheduled to come online. So far, they haven't had to do that. So the program's working. Uh, we're coming real close to needing another women's prison, but that 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 we've kind of kept away from having to do. But as part of this grant review committee, I got to review all 36 counties' applications for their uh, baseline justice reinvestment grant funding, and that funding's divvied up as each county has a percentage of. Uh, people under supervision, either in parole or probation for felony crimes. And, uh, you know, so they count up how many people you have versus how many people in the whole state are on supervision. And that percentage gets uh, multiplied times the amount the, the um, legislature allocated for this program. And in past years, Lane County's percentage was about 8.26%. And this because of some really good work our DA has done in trying to uh, bolster the amount of people that are actually going through trial and getting um, getting actually convicted and, and put on supervision, uh, our percentage went up uh, a little bit above 9%, which gave us you know uh, a significant amount of funding more than we had. And the amount of money that actually was put into the pot by the legislature was uh, basically an inflation adjusted amount from the previous biennium. So it was kind of a, a, a same thing, but we got a little bit bigger piece of the pie in Lane County, but every county gets a percentage and uh, they have to propose what programs they're gonna fund with this. And they have to kind of be showing that they're actually making some progress. So there were two things is they have to meet certain standards, which is, you know, uh, preventing people from going to prison, you know, what are your prevention programs and, and how are you, are you getting, you, are you, what are you doing with people when they come out of prison and are you keeping your community safe at the same time? There's some measures they have to stand up to in their actual programs, but at the same time, they're tracking, the state criminal justice commission is tracking how your prison use is going county by county. And is it going up or down? And how does it measure against the state average? And uh, it's looking at that and comparing, you know, is there a county that isn't doing well? Is their prison usage climbing? Um, but are they doing, you know, are they changing their programming because of that? Because they're seeing they're not doing, they're not doing a good job or are they, or are they just kind of asking to fund the same program they had last time? That was sort of some of the things we were looking at. But it was pretty interesting to see all these programs across the state designed to basically um, help people deal with, and, and this is only for property and drug crimes, by the way. This is not people that are committing violent crimes against people. 
you know, this this program is specifically targeted drug and property crimes because that's a lot of prison usage happens for those things. And uh, so generally those crimes are, are driven by addiction and other issues. So really a lot of it is about funding things like our, our drug court and our veterans court to try and uh, get people into treatment. And if they fail in those things, they, they end up serving their prison term anyway. Uh, other things we do is as, as we get people out of prison on work release or early release, um, how we uh, provide uh, support for those folks and housing and other uh, job training, job placement, uh, basically, uh, you know, whether we can give them some counseling on, on, you know, some different ways of solving problems, maybe than what got them into prison in the first place, changing their, their thinking patterns and helping them choose better peers to hang out with, uh, you know, all, all sorts of different counseling and, you know, our parole officers get involved in this. We get folks, uh, uh, nonprofits like sponsors involved. Our, our court system and our DAs are involved in making these decisions, our judges. Uh, and it, it's pretty interesting to watch that whole thing across the state unfold. And you can actually see from the statistics that it's actually having an impact and saving the state money in that, you know, we actually have a growing population, so we should have to have more prison space if nothing changed. But these programs are actually um, keeping people out of prison and keeping their communities safe because that's you know the part of the the, uh, the criteria for judging these these programs is that overlying thing that that they're not putting the communities at risk by doing these programs. So it it was a real interesting Thursday to spend virtually um, nine hours locked in a room with with about seven other people going over these these applications and making decisions on who gets money and who doesn't um and it turned it turns out on the base level we 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 funded all the counties for at least one year but four of the counties were were only given provisional funding for the first year they have to reapply for their second year because in those four counties their prison usage numbers are trending in the wrong direction and they weren't really showing in their grant request that they were making any real changes to try and change those trends. And some, you know, sometimes it just might be that a county is really small and, and is having difficulty um, putting together programs, or in some cases, it might be that there's one partner in the criminal justice system that isn't buying into trying to, to make a difference in this. Uh, you know, there's a couple uh, DAs across the state that really just think their only job is to try and get people the maximum sentence for whatever crime they commit, and that's their job. You know, and they don't think about downstream consequences or that those folks are going to come back to their community and without some kind of, uh, you know, intervention, they're going to reoffend and be back in their courtrooms again and costing everybody a lot more money. So. It's a program that's designed to really save taxpayers a lot of money in prison costs and also save a lot of money in, you know, if you can get these folks diverted into treatment, give them good counseling, change their way of thinking, 
get them a job, get them some stable housing, they may never offend again. They may become that good taxpaying citizen that won't cost us a dime in the future as taxpayers versus if the whole idea is just let's lock them up, throw away the keys type thing. Those people go to prison, hang out with a bunch of other criminals for several years, come back out without any counseling or anything, go back and hang out with the people they were hanging out with before they went into prison, maybe come out and not even have a place to live. So they're homeless. They can't get a job. And next thing you know, they're committing crimes back into our criminal justice system and costing us money again. And while they're in prison, they cost a lot of money. That is one of the most expensive ways to house somebody is in a prison. You know, there's far cheaper ways to house people. So, uh, you know, our jail, you know, even local jail is less costly. It's better to try and keep them here on probation or parole and have them be sanctioned to a couple nights in jail if they kind of get on the edge of, 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 of bad behavior. Um, things like, you know, missing a, a, an appointment with a counselor or something like that, having spend a night in jail is cheaper than a night in prison, a, a local night in jail. Uh, and it's even cheaper if we maybe sentence them to a weekend on a sheriff work crew clean up the side of a highway. You know, that's another sanction that we can utilize. You know, there, there's there's sanctions that, that are available there. At the same time, there's rewards we can give them and and all this, you know, uh, temporary housing and job uh, coaching and, and placement and, and assistance there. So, you know, there's a, a reward side of the system, too, for, for the good behaviors. But, you know, so that's kind of where I spent my last Thursday. So I had justice reinvestment on the brain after that. But then Monday, I was up there for our monthly uh, Association of Oregon County's legislative committees. And I, I attended uh, two different committees there. I attended the Natural Resources Committee. So I got to think a little bit about federal policy and federal lands and all that stuff and talking with some of the Eastern Oregon County commissioners about sage grouse and the issues they have out there with grazing rights and the BLM and you know, you know, right down to the you know the whole Hammonds and and other things that you know we we hear about in the news. To uh, you know, my fellow Oregon uh, Oregon and California Railroad Lands commissioners that you know known as the ONC counties uh, that are dealing with the the federal forest policies on harvest and spotted owls and everything like that. And, you know, spending some time about, you know, we've got an opportunity coming up for all these federal policies where we actually have an administration that might be willing to sign a bill if it would come, if it could get through Congress on changing some of these policies and, and being more, uh, giving more local control. To, to some of the federal forests and and thinking about um, you know what some of these forests were originally designated for the ONC forests were designated for a single purpose unlike the the national forests which are designated designated for multi purpose and multiple use um, so it, it was interesting conversations in that committee meeting but the following meeting is the one I actually chair and it's a public safety meeting. And in that meeting, we are having some discussions about resilience and all that because, you know, a side piece of public safety is disaster preparedness. And of course, uh, we had a presentation by uh, 
um, a guy by the name of Steve Robinson, who's got a um, nonprofit that he started for um, trying to get people aware of, of uh, the Cascadia subduction zone, earthquake coming up and just trying to get people prepared for that event and, and thinking about that event. And um, one of the slides he put up there was about the historical rest record of Cascadia subduction zone earthquakes. And for those of you that don't know or haven't, you know, been haven't read a, a newspaper or or watch the news or or whatever for the last several years and don't know what the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake is, there's a huge fault off the Oregon coast where the Pacific plate goes underneath the Juan de Fuca plate or the Juan de Fuca plate goes under the coastal plate. I don't one of these things where this there's a a uh, crustal plate that's going underneath another plate that basically runs from about Puget Sound down to Crescent City, California. And that fault ruptures um, either partially about half the length of it or over the whole length of it once every about 200 years. And they, they can tell because there's geographical record in sand deposits in the uh, estuaries where they can tell from the way where there's mud and muck that builds up over time naturally just settling. And then there's suddenly a whole bunch of sand that's laying on top of that because it came in with a tsunami from the ocean. And, and from these core samples and carbon dating, they have all that mapped out for over 5,000 years of record. 29 different huge tsunamis they've tracked over time. And the longest period between those events has been 330 years. And the last event we had happened just before um, Lewis and Clark got out here. So the Indians there could tell them about it. Plus the record shows it happened in the year 1700. And that was 317 years ago. And we're well past 28 of the 29 events they tracked and time-wise. So we're due for this big earthquake and, and tsunami here on, on the East Coast, on the West Coast, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, so we ought to be thinking about planning for it. And, you know, I opened the show talking about how Mother Nature is kind of showing man that maybe we're not the top of the food chain lately um, with all these natural disasters. The one thing that it, that I've seen in several of these disasters. We saw it in the flooding in Houston. We saw it in the Hurricane Irma in Florida, and we saw it in the hurricane down there in Puerto Rico, is elderly care facilities and group homes are extremely vulnerable to these events. And, you know, there was that one, you know, video of that elderly care facility that was across the street from a hospital where they didn't get the folks um, evacuated. The ground floor had water sitting in it. They lost their power in the heat and humidity of Miami. And the folks inside there were, you know, sick from the heat, dehydrated, you know, because there's no air conditioning. Their uh, water systems were down. You know, it was just bad news all around. You know, we saw videos of them trying to evacuate, uh, you know, nursing homes as they were being flooded in Houston. 
And apparently in, in Puerto Rico, there have been some real disasters with elderly care facilities in that hurricane and the aftermath of lack of power, lack of clean drinking water. Uh, it just it's a very vulnerable population. And it's not just elderly care facilities. It can be a foster home for folks uh, that are developmentally, developmentally disabled, uh, group home, uh, folks that have, uh, you know, uh, mental health issues that might be in a group home. Any of those situations where you got a vulnerable population that can't truly um, prepare for themselves or even react for themselves necessarily, that's that's a real risk. And as we look at the subduction zone earthquake, you know, there's predictions. You know, according to some of the studies that the state's done. We may lose power in the in the Willamette Valley for a month to three months, uh, just with all the damage to the electrical grid and the time it will take to rebuild the electrical grid. Let alone what will happen on the coast with the with the tsunami and the earthquake the shaking there is going to be much more severe. They may be without power for six months to a year. You know, how are those nursing homes prepared to at least keep their people in their care alive and well cared for long enough for outside help to get there and evacuate them to a, to a place where they can be safe and that's that's you know that can be weeks it could be you know in the case of the subduction zone it could be you know a month uh, before they can get full evacuation because there's going to have to be road bridges that get rebuilt um, you know, to get to some areas. And one of the things they we talked about in our meeting up in Salem is what they call survival islands, so to speak. The subduction zone earthquake is going to separate our communities into islands where there's going to be bridges down or landslides that close off roads. And we're going to be isolated into pockets. And what happens in those islands with with people and you know, if your nursing homes in an island uh, that might be uh, smaller than some of the other islands, it may be one of the latter ones to get help. You know, they're going to try and help the most amount of people first. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you're a resident here of Lane County and especially the Eugene area, we had a big ice storm last winter. And some people got their power on pretty quickly because they happened to be close to a feeder line or something like that. And the power companies prioritized getting, making repairs that got the most people turned back on the fastest. Yeah, so, so if you're out in the sticks somewhere and one of three people that was out because of a branch down on a, a line on your street, it may have taken days, if not a whole week to get your power back because they were busy fixing things that would get 100 people or 1,000 people back online. Well, it's gonna be the same way with these survival islands. If you're in a very small survival island, you may be quite a long time before they fix the bridges and get into your area. Uh, so it's really gonna be important that these group home facilities and group facilities like uh, assisted living facilities, Alzheimer care facilities, um, you know, group homes uh, for the developmentally disabled, those are going to have to be planning to 
take care of their vulnerable population with a skeleton staff because at the same time they're probably going to be stuck with whatever staff got stranded there the night you know the the, the day or the night the event happened they may not be able to get new staff there um, and take care of these folks with you know and have you know some kind of backup power system some kind of backup heating uh, or air conditioning system and you know some way of you know some stored potable water so they can keep their folks hydrated and stored um, you know food that yeah you know, and you know you've got to think about if you're if you've got elderly folks that can't eat you know a hard you know biscuit you know that stores really well um, you're going to have to think about how you're going to feed those people, you know, and how you're going to get the food soft enough and small enough pieces if it's somebody that can't handle that. Um, so it, it's something that that kind of keeps me up at night a little bit. I mean, because, you know, I've got a, an elderly parent in a memory care facility um, and I'm getting ready to help my wife's um, father possibly end up in a, a assisted living facility here uh, locally. Um, you know, I can't think of anyone that probably doesn't have a family member or knows somebody that has a family member in one of these facilities. How well are they planning? Are they going to be that that Miami um, facility that was across the street from a hospital that had backup power and, and letting their, their residents swelter in the heat with that right across the street? Um, you know, it it's you know, it's a good question to ask him. And because the county board of commissioners also sits as the county board of health, it's one I think we're going to look into. And in fact, yesterday at the board meeting, I asked my fellow commissioners to agree to have a work session on this in the future and look at what we can do to help our local uh, facilities plan and prepare for disasters and making sure that these vulnerable citizens in our community don't end up, you know, starving to death and freezing to death in a, in a disaster uh, and having a high mortality rate uh, that really could have been prevented with just a little forethought and a little pre-planning uh, and and working to be prepared for that disaster. Which gets back to just you know our conversation last week with the sheriff about a little bit about disaster planning as we talked about, you know, some of the the uh, Alice training, they're putting some of the schools through where you pre-think uh, 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 active shooter situations. We also got into talking about pre-thinking some of the disaster situations and preparing for more than just yourself. Because one of the things we talked about in the meeting was, so you're in one of these survival islands. The moment the subduction zone earthquake happens, it's not going to be like Hurricane Irma and and uh, Hurricane Harvey, where there's a long preparation time because they've they've given out hurricane watches. People can get out of the way to a certain extent, or shelter in place. Very few people get stranded in the moment in those situations. But with an earthquake, you're not going to plan on being where you need to be when that happens. You're going to be wherever you are. You know and there's going to be these islands created where there may be tourists that get trapped in an area and you or people that were at work or just commuting to you know or at the grocery store wherever there's going to be a mixture in these islands of folks that actually live there and they've got their you know they might have their their 
little bit of supplies in their home or at least a pantry full of food, a place to sleep and all that. And there's going to be a, a group of people that were working, traveling through or visiting that that area that got caught out. And what's that interaction going to be between the residents and the guests, so to speak, of those survival islands? And, and you know, think about that. If you're the one that, that, that happens to be at home, you've done a good job of preparing you've got your three days of water and three days of food or, or, you know, even maybe more than that for you and your family. And somebody just happened to be, you know, at work, uh, at, at the business, you know, at, you know, a, um, a staffer at the local school that's around the corner from you. And they were trapped by that event. And maybe even some of the kids that their parents on the other side of, of, of the river, you know, and those kids got stranded. Are you know? Are you ready and willing to take some of those folks into your home and assist them, knowing that there's a good possibility that it could be your family that's on the wrong side of the bridge, and the wrong side of the river when this happens, and there's somebody going to take care of them. So, kind of thinking about, are you? How, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to be civil? And then maybe thinking about maybe I need to actually prepare for more than just me and my family. And maybe I need to set aside that, you know, the, the, the tracked person supply or the neighbor that can't prepare supply. Robin, you want to say something? Yeah. It's uh, assuming you can hear me. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that as far as emergency preparedness goes is a thing called ice which is the, uh, uh, for your cell phone, it's called in case of emergency, that in your cell phone under your contacts, you have emergency contact numbers. So in case that something happens to you and you can't communicate, then the emergency responders can look at your cell phone contacts and, and reach somebody. Hmm. I'll have to look that up because I, I I think it might be obvious with me because I think I at least have my wife listed as, as spouse. <laughs> And, and you know, if you look at my favorites, but of course they'd have to break my code to get to that. Yeah, yes. my cell phone's got a six-digit code that they're nearly impossible to break. The iPhones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, some phones though you can you can have the number displayed on your screen or, uh, yeah. or if you're like mine and I don't lock my phone, but uh, yeah. in contacts you have a in case emergency number um, that somebody can call. Yeah, yeah. Where see where I've got you know because of my access to county computer systems, I have to have a phone that locks after a certain number of seconds to maintain their security. So that that's that's a good idea. Is to you know do you have that contact information all that? I I have you know a road ID band that I when I go out on my bicycle um, has contact information on it uh, that I wear because. You know, there's a good chance if I do get an accident on my bicycle, I might be unconscious. <laughs> exactly. Well, even in your wallet, uh, it doesn't yeah. hurt. Hurt to carry contact, emergency contact information. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's you know, and, and there's other things like if you have special medical needs and all that, carry you know, carry that with you. That's, there's a whole list of things that you know. If you go to our Lane County Sheriff's page 
and the sheriff, you know, talked about that last week. I think it's lanesheriff.org. Um, you can get to it. Uh, if you go to the emergency management side, there's actually a, a checklist they have prepared. And it's like a two-page checklist of items you might need for an emergency and basically for a bug out bag too. Because there is the case where, you know, look at the California situation. Those people didn't get a chance to grab the pictures off the wall of their family or, you know, a computer hard drive. They just had to run. You know, some of them in bare feet. Well, and speaking of, uh, don't rely on your cell phones, too, if we have a major disaster or power outage. Yeah, definitively. And that's, you know, something we've been talking a little bit about is uh, not only is it the fact that the, the system might be damaged, but it also will be overwhelmed. Quite often in a disaster, the first thing that happens is the voice system on cell phones goes down because the data, it overloads the data ca capacity of the cell phone towers. Uh, and about the only thing you can do is text is the best way to communicate if, if there's any cell phone availability. But in the case of a subduction zone earthquake, how many of those towers are gonna survive? You know, and if they don't have power, how long will they, their backup generation systems last? before they need refueling. Where is that refueling going to come from? You know, <laughs> it, 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 it may not be what you have. You know, that may be not be the way to communicate. In fact, in Puerto Rico, that was quite obvious that, they, that the cell phone system went down to where there were only a few places where there was minimal coverage. And they actually showed pictures of this one stretch of highway that had coverage where there were cars parked down both shoulders and people standing there on their cell phones trying to get out to, to family members outside of Puerto Rico to let them know they were okay and all that. Yeah, because <laughs> there was one tower that was working. Isn't that the one somebody stole the generator? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it, it's, uh, I would be, and that's the other thing that happens during these events. You know, there's a lot of theft and all that. So it's kind of like, you know, what, what do we want to plan for? Do we want to plan to be a civil society in the case of a disaster? Are we going to let our vulnerable citizens like the elderly um, be the first casualties because we didn't plan for it? Are we going to treat somebody that gets stranded in our neighborhood differently than, than ourselves that live in that neighborhood? Are they, is it suddenly going to become the outsiders and the residents? You know, and is there going to be conflict there or, or are we going to be prepared to understand that the only reason we're not one of the outsiders is pure chance. And it, they're just there by chance. And are we going to treat them in a civil manner and try and help them out and survive the event until help can get there? You know, and, and pre thinking some of that so we don't set ourselves up with that, you know, residents versus the outsiders. And we're already into breaking down a society and setting ourselves up into gangs. You know, and this is a, you know, a, a, a nonpartisan issue. It's a, uh, you know, there, there's there's no sides to this issue. When we have that ca Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, everybody's going to be impacted. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're a Christian or an atheist. If you're, you know, an Antifa sympathizer or a white supremacist, you're, you're going to be caught <laughs> in this thing. Um, and you really, you know, 
how we react to that can make it, you know, how well we actually all survive. And if we start kind of thinking through some of this and not let the fact that it's some huge thing that's so scary, it's not worth preparing for. It's not, you know, the, the thing is, is what we do to prepare for this helps us prepare for that ice storm we had last winter. You know, it helps us prepare for, um, you know, a minor flooding event. It helps us prepare for uh, all sorts of uh, emergencies, just thinking through these things. Uh, you know, whether it's a fire event, you know, we look at Northern California right now and their firestorm, we had the same chance for that happening right here in the Willamette Valley. As, as you look at the South Hills of Eugene that face due north, which direction does the afternoon wind from blow from really hard in the summer, late summertime when it's really dry, they blow straight up those hills. And if for some reason there was an ignition source in at about three in the afternoon when that wind's starting to blow up, uh, you know, days it gets up to 20 miles an hour, an ignition source at, at the base of the South Hills in, in Eugene, we could have a fire race up that hill and cause the same kind of neighborhood destruction that's going on in California right now in the wine country. And, you know, you folks that are living in the South Hills, have you thought about that? Have you thought about what are your escape routes? You know, what, you know, do you have a go pack? Have you talked with your family about that? You know, are you even, you know, sensitive to that? Do you have a defensible space around your house? Do you keep some of it, you know, watered in the summertime instead of letting it go dry? Uh, so there is a green space around your house. That, that, all those things, you know, if you think of beforehand, but also with that, you know, if you're thinking about if I have to go, what do I grab and take with me? If you look at that, you know, 72 hour go pack for your family and in that checklist of items, that same checklist of items helps out if you're out of electricity, even though your home wasn't damaged by a subduction zone earthquake, if the infrastructure was and your neighborhood's now islanded out because of a couple bridge failures on, you know, the I-5 bridge or, or uh you know, Washington Jefferson Bridge and a few others go down and you're you're now part of an island. Um, you know, are you, you know, that gives you just that much more preparedness for that. So it's really uh, something we all really need to think about here in, in in Oregon, particularly if you are west of the Cascades, is that subduction zone earthquake. And even if you're east of the Cascades, if you're in Bend and Redmond and those those uh, jurisdictions uh, that are going to be where people evacuate to, because as people try and get out of the Willamette Valley, where most of the population is, where are they going to try and go to if the Willamette Valley is basically uh, without power and uh, doesn't have good food distribution? Where where is there there no damage? It's going to be Bend and Redmond and Lapine and you know, maybe Klamath Falls, that's where the people are going to be coming to. So are you ready to host uh, the 2 million people that live in the Willamette Valley? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, this is, this is the uh, eclipse on steroids with no notice. So just think about that for a few minutes. Um, so 
this is a free-for-all day on the Bo's Nose Show. And now that I've got your mind spinning, uh, you can change the conversation to something that maybe doesn't make your mind spin so much. If you give us a call at 646-721-9887, just press one, lets us know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, that's 646-721-9887. And give us a call. Let's talk about what you want to talk about on the Bo's Nose Show. Otherwise, I can go on about disaster preparedness or diverting people from prison and uh, other things that are on my mind. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure there are other things that are in the news you might want to talk about. Uh, I was talking to a group last night and we had a long conversation about housing first and uh, the proposal for a facility over there next to our behavioral health department that's going to be across the street from Autzen Stadium. Uh, in the future. We can talk about that too. Or, you know, we can talk about my poodles if you don't call up with a con- with a good topic because, you know, I have one of them sitting right here listening to me talk on the Bo's Nose show. Uh, my, my, my newest poodle, Piper, who has uh, definitely decided that I am her person <laughs> as she's slapping me with her paw while I'm trying to talk. So give us a call here on the Bo's Nose Show. Again, it's 646-721-987. Just press one. And also, don't forget to like us on Facebook at KRBN Internet News Talk Radio. If you just uh, start putting in KRBN in your uh, Facebook search bar, uh, you'll probably find us. Go there and like our page because uh, that way you'll get more of our notifications about what's coming up on the show and anything else that might be happening on KRBN Internet Radio. Uh, and, you know, it also helps maybe your friends see some of our notifications if you like us. Kind of the way the algorithms work on Facebook. Uh, you know, more likes we get, the more people will see our posts. So um, like us on Facebook, please. So, uh kind of talked a little bit about nursing homes and disasters, a little bit about islands and residents versus outsiders, you know, kind of, you know, kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, what was that, that uh, movie about gangs way back in the seven, was that the late seventies, early eighties? Yeah. Uh, God, what was the name of that movie? <laughs> There's been a lot of movies about gangs. Oh no! It, it was it was kind of a it almost became a teen cult movie where the, yeah the the bunch of gangs like in New York City and one of them's got to get across town overnight and they keep getting beat up by other gangs. I can't remember the damn outsiders or something like that. It was it was it was a cult classic, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it kind of the, the whole idea of the outsiders kind of brings that image to mind as we start breaking down into gangs after this subduction zone earthquake. And I really don't want to see that. I want to see us. I want to see us become, uh, you know, that that community like, you know, like we saw in the Las Vegas shooting uh, at, at the concert there where people that just started helping other people that were wounded and, you know, use cars and pickup trucks to drive wounded people, damn the blood getting on their upholstery or whatever else to hospitals. And, you know, just, you know, people automatically helped other people. 
that's what I want to see when we have a big disaster here in Lane County and Western Oregon. If, if the subduction zone earthquake happens, and, and it will, because ge geology is a bitch, um, it, it, <laughs> it repeats itself. Those stresses are building up in the Earth's crust. Eventually, it will happen. And um, I want to see the folks react like that here in, in Lane County. I want to see people that are prepared to help each other and that understand that the fact that somebody got trapped outside of their neighborhood in your neighborhood is just a victim of circumstance and chance, and it could have been you, and that you're willing to help that person uh, weather that, that event and you know, be kind to people versus um, you know, I've got mine and, and, and you're an outsider, get the hell out of here, you know. <laughs> Type thing, you know, yeah. You know, we 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 want to we want to have the kind of society that that we were seeing that 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 um, after that deadly event in Las Vegas, where people were you know helping each other, you know, with their wounds, helping people reconnect with you know uh, you know the story of the one guy that lost his dog in, in the mad scramble, and people helped him find his dog. Um, over the next couple of days was just, you know, things like that where people just step up and and help without being prompted. That's really what, you know, I'd like to see. And and the way it makes it easy to do that is if you prepare personally. If you've taken the time to think some of this through, uh, you know, do what you can within your means as far as uh, preparation goes, and uh, just, uh, you know, trying to um, be ready. And, and if you're ready for yourself, then you'd be more ready to help somebody else. And that's really a, a strong lesson. In fact, it was one of the lessons that we started talking about back when I was working for Eugene Water and Electric Board, uh, as we were talking about our disaster response is, we started talking to our employees about how well is your household prepared? Because we knew if our employees had to worry about their family, they weren't gonna show up to help turn the power back on in a, in a major disaster, <laughs> So, uh, or to run the water system. So as we were preparing, and this was back and and back in the Y2K days, as we were preparing for Y2K, one of the things we were talking to employees about is, how well is your family prepared for a disaster? Do you have all that stuff taken care of now? Rather than, you know, you know so that if there is, if Y2K does turn out to be disaster, you guys are going to be able to help. And, and that was, you know, really when I started thinking about all this was way back then. It seems like a long time ago that Y2K and, and, and what a silly thing we all kind of got worried about. Although it wasn't too silly, I think some of the worrying about it actually made it a non-event. Um, but definitely, uh, the more we think about how we're going to react to a disaster, the better we'll react. But, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things we can talk about here on the Bose Nose Show. We've got about eight or nine minutes left here. So if you want to get in on the conversation, it's 646-721-9887. And you know, maybe we'll think a little bit about national news. Um, you know, and if you want to call on and talk about this, you know, I brought up Las Vegas there for a minute, talked about how people helped out. 
But there's been other news about you know, Las Vegas, this whole idea of bump stocks and, and gun control and what to do about it and you know how do we prevent a Las Vegas. You know, you want to call and tell me your thoughts on that. You can give me a call at 646-721-9887. Just press one, let's just know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, 646-721-9887. Tell us what you think. How would you have prevented Las Vegas and other mass shooting events? Is more gun control the way to do it? Uh, Is there need for additional gun control? Uh, Is there an issue with gun control in this country? Uh, I I personally, I I don't know if any sort of law would have prevented Las Vegas. Uh, Apparently, all the weapons that he obtained, he obtained he obtained in, through legal means, passed background checks. Uh, in that state, has background checks. They have, um, you know, they they have they don't have a gun show loophole in that state. You know, all those various things that people talk about. The only thing he had that was maybe a little bit different is this this bump stock device that allows a semi-automatic to fire at a, at a fairly rapid rate, not quite automatic, but pretty close. Um, and, and there's talk about making that particular device uh, illegal. You know, is that a good thing to do? Um, I think, you know, there's, even without Without that device um, and a semi-automatic, you can still uh, shoot a lot of rounds pretty darn fast. Um, and there are other means, because apparently he also had, had purchased uh, a, a fair amount of ammonium nitrate and tannerite, which is uh, an explosive also. Uh, so, he, you know, there were other ways he could have killed people in mass numbers through explosions. Uh, you know, and we've seen now that you know, vehicles can be weapons, whether it's, uh, you know, in Charlottesville, Virginia, or Barcelona, Spain, or London, England, uh, how do you stop that sort of uh, mass killing by just using a van or a car? Uh, That's, you know, that's uh, a reality of today, Uh, you know, is, is, is a gun the only way people can achieve mass um, fatalities. So it's a uh, free for all day here on the Bo's Nose Show. If you want to talk a little bit about uh, gun control, uh, Las Vegas, national news, you want to get down to local news, kind of surprised no one's called in to ask me about uh, union negotiations and possible strikes and things like that. Although I am limited on what I can talk about under collective bargaining law, I don't want to violate our employees' rights to collectively bargain because it is their right, and I don't want to accidentally uh, step on those rights, particularly seeing the communications between uh, the bargaining unit and uh, the management should be at the bargaining table, not uh, through my radio show. But uh, I, I will say that I hope it's my hope that we can settle a contract and avoid a strike. Uh, you know, nobody wins in a strike situation, and uh, I really feel like the employees in this unit are hardworking employees and valuable to the county. Uh, I just uh, we're pretty far apart right now, and that's and uh, it, it's a difficult gap to close at this time. And that's probably about all I can say <laughs> at, at this point in time. 
I might be able to say more later once bargaining is kind of completed and there's and uh, we're not uh, quite as bound by some of those uh, some of the, the rules as far as what we can say publicly as board members. But um, yeah, we covered a lot of subjects here on the Bose Nose Show today. Uh, still got four minutes left. That's plenty of time to have a conversation. If you want to give us a call at 646-721-9887. And we can talk about anything you want to, uh, including poodles, gun control, unions, disaster preparedness, uh, you name it, we can talk about it. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about uh, the, the the coach that resigned from OSU and left $12 million on the table in his resignation, uh, pretty amazing um, show of character. You know, I have to, you know, Coach Anderson that, that resigned from OSU, I have to hand it to him. He could have, you know, made them have to fire him and, and or, you know, argued over the remainder of his contract and bonuses and, and things that are written in, but he voluntarily stepped down and also um, waived um, his rights to that additional money uh, is a pretty amazing show of character. I would, I would challenge anybody else to have that level of character to, to do something like he did. And it's, it, you know, I like to talk about people that show, um, you know, humanity and character and let's hold those folks up and not talk so much about the bad people, you know, the people that commit the shootings. I don't want to talk about him. I want to talk about the person that, that even while the gunfire was still going, uh, put direct pressure on somebody's wounds that was on the ground that they didn't even know and assisted that person to cover and then assisted them onto the hospital and stayed with that person that whole time. That's my hero. That's the person I want to talk about. This, you know, coach at, at Oregon State, talk about character and, and, and willingness to, to uh, one, uh, be accountable for the results he was getting and to not be greedy and to to have that that um, altruism and and sense of character that he didn't feel he deserved that 12 million uh, and that the program was better served hanging on to it to utilize that 12 million to attract a, a, a new coach that might be able to um, turn the program around so Lots of topics covered here on the Bose Nose Show. Um, you know, but we're getting towards the end, and it's going to probably be another week before I get to talk to you. And I appreciate you listening to the Bose Nose Show. I'll be back next week at 4 o'clock on Wednesday. Have a great week, and thank you for listening.